Hey everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror questions ever made, according to our guests at least, and this week's guest is you, the listener, because we're doing a mailbag yet, so welcome to you. I figure we'll just jump right into this. If you have a question that you want to hear answered, maybe we'll do another one of these. Send in your hypotheticals, your questions, your thoughts, whatever you got, to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. And this first question that we got here is a actual, it's two questions in this first one, so I'm already breaking the rules, but hey, George, love the show. Two questions. Which one-off slasher villain do you think would have made the best franchise? And if Gritty was in a slasher movie, how would you take him down? Thanks, Patrick in DC. Well, first off, hello, Patrick. Uh, Second, um, to answer your first question, I'm going to say Eric Binford from Fade to Black. Uh, for people who don't know it, Fade to Black is this cool little movie from 1980 about an obsessive film fan who starts getting revenge on people around him by reenacting scenes from classic movies that he loves, like The Mummy and Dracula. Now, I don't think it's really spoiling to say that since it's a one-off, it's a reasonable assumption that he dies at the end, um, which that is the implication at the end of the movie, but the way that it happens does leave him open to vanishing into the night, and you could even say that it's another homage this time to Halloween. So I think that it wouldn't be that difficult to kind of wave away the ending of the first one and, uh, you know, kind of find a place for them to jump off. And I think that it would be really cool to have a franchise that sort of explores the various film movements and maybe even bring some light to ones that people don't know a lot about. And, uh, you know, honestly... It doesn't even need to stay Binford. You know, you could have other people who are obsessive about the cinematic waves and do kind of an interesting anthology series, kind of like Halloween wanted to do uh, with Halloween 3. So, you know, I guess it's open to multiple ways that this could have been a franchise, and I think it would make for an interesting one. You know, it also, there's a little bit of the meta commentary on the way that people interact with the media that they love. And, uh, you know, it has some comedic moments as well. So it it is pretty uh, ahead of its time, I think. And, um, you know, if you haven't seen the first one, I believe it's on Shudder. It's worth watching if if you haven't seen it. As far as the gritty question, I have to say, Patrick, that I was hesitant to answer this one because I feared that you might bring this intel back to Slapshot in the Capitals or something. But we're nothing if not thorough here at the Horror House, so I will reveal my secret. And... My first instinct is to say that I would either simply give up because Gritty is a force of nature, uh, or I would make myself toxic to him somehow and get some kind of nice heroic sacrifice. But I was thinking about it, and I realized he's wobbling around on those skates a lot of the time, and I assume that that would still be the case in a slasher movie. And his ankles, compared to the rest of him, are pretty spindly. So I think that my approach to taking out Gritty would be to go low, try and take him down at the ankles, Get away when he can't chase anymore. Your question did not say I needed to vanquish him, just that uh, I needed to take him down. And so I think that that's that's the way, is uh, just hope for the best by going low. Thanks for the questions. Our next question comes from Hank, and Hank wants to know, what actor who hasn't played a villain do you think should, and what would you want to see from them? I think Daniel Craig could play a really fucked up scientist. Lovable weenie, Hank. Well, first of all, I agree that Daniel Craig could probably play a really cool uh, scientist. We've seen him do some interesting stuff with, like, Logan Lucky, where he gets to branch out a little bit. Um, And I think that Daniel Craig does have a little more range than people might give him credit for. I did think about this question a lot as far as my own opinion, though, and ultimately I couldn't really narrow it down past two. I picked an actor and an actress. Um, I think that Janelle Monae 
is a really incredible actor considering uh, how she's also juggling a great music career. I think she's a great musician and uh, a fantastic actor and all the stuff that she's in. She's mostly had standout supporting roles, and uh, she finally got a chance to star in a movie with Antebellum, which turned out to be kind of a tone-deaf stinker. But, you know, that's not her fault. And I think that she could be really great as some kind of deranged killer. I think she's got a really kind of manic energy to her that could really be utilized in a really interesting way. Plus, I just think that she's a lot of fun, and I would like to see her get more performances. Um, Sort of on that same note, I also think that Dev Patel should just be getting put in, like, a ton of stuff. He was the best part of Lion. Uh, I, I, I know that not everybody liked the personal history of David Copperfield, but... I haven't read the book, so I had nothing to compare it to, and I thought that the movie was a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to Green Knight as well. You know, I, I think that that looks great. We, we He's shown that he can do serious. David Copperfield let him loosen up a little bit. I'd like to see him sort of ride the line between, like, a comedic villain who can occasionally get real icy. I think that uh, there's a lot to Dev Patel, and he's got a really interesting career uh, ahead of him. And um, I would like to see him... Not be afraid of horror, you know. Uh, hopefully Green Knight opens up some really cool doors for him. So uh, thanks to Hank for that great question. Uh, next question. Dear Georgie, no softball questions here. I'm hammering away at you with some hard-hitting questions that you've been ducking for far too long. Oh, by the way, these come from uh, Chris from Channel 83 Podcast. Great friend of the show. And uh, he, he really has thrown out some, some great questions here. So number one, is the host a kaiju? This is an interesting question right off the bat. Now, of course, technically, a kaiju is specific to Japan, but over time has been sort of expanded to consider most kinds of giant monsters, not even just, uh, like, Asian monsters like the kaiju, which would be from Korea, um, but even stuff like Gorgo, which is Irish. You know, some people call that a kaiju as well. So even within that though even within the like expansion to most giant monsters i think that even within that there is um usually something more dramatic in the mutation though like powers whereas the host is kind of just like a fish with fucked up tails and legs and so to solve this one i went to the spirit of the word kaiju which translates to strange creature and you know the host is strange it's a creature i guess it's a kaiju But uh, I guess that also makes a lot of us kaijus. And, uh, you know, isn't that kind of beautiful at the end of the day? Second question. uh, Who would win in a fight, Pulgasari or Showa Godzilla? Now, uh, if you don't know Pulgasari, it's a really, really awesome movie that is just absolutely fascinating. And I believe that you can hear Chris and I talking about Pulgasari this very day. Uh, I think that the same day that this releases is the day that I am a guest on his own show, Channel 83, and we're talking about Pulgasari. It's really cool. I highly encourage you to go check that out. But in one corner, we have Pulgasari, the Iron Bull, hero and villain, all at once in a monster movie with a backstory as fascinating as the movie itself. And then in the other corner, we have the star of a whopping 14 movies from 1955 to 1975, and uh, that's Showa Godzilla. So... You know, we got to just check out the tail of the tape as far as I'm concerned. Now, Pulgasari reaches about 164 feet is what I found generally to be the estimated height of him, which is 14 feet higher than Showa Godzilla, who tops out at 150 feet. The real difference is in their weights. Now, Pulgasari, I I saw him listed as 3,000 tons, 
Although I do think it's reasonable that he could get bigger with more access to iron, which is part of what makes him grow. And I when I the, but the thing that really shocked me is when I went to go look up Showa Godzilla's weight, and according to Random House's official Godzilla compendium, he weighs in at a whopping twenty thousand tons. Now, of course, this was shocking, but I also did the math on Pulgasari as far as the weight of iron uh, for cubic feet, and uh, he's got a pretty sizable weight discrepancy as well. So I get, I was like, I guess I'll let both of these weight discrepancies slide. And, uh, you know, we I looked at their powers. Pulgasari, you know, his abilities include being iron, eating iron, and being big. That's about it. Is it enough? And, uh, you know, Godzilla has remarkable agility for a creature his size. Uh, we've seen him drop kick and move on his tail, and uh, he's got radioactive breath and all kinds of jazz. And, you know, I think that... Um, Ultimately, the weight discrepancy is going to be the deciding factor. You know, uh, Pogasari might have a little bit of, of height on him, but Godzilla can heat up the iron with his breath, make it malleable, and just kind of throw himself at Pogasari and flatten him out. You know, 20,000 tons is uh, that's a lot of weight. It's no surprise that he's constantly destroying uh, Japan with that uh, getting thrown around. And finally, uh, Chris's third question here is you meet the perfect person. Romantically, this person is ideal. You find them physically attractive, intellectually stimulating, consistently funny, and deeply compassionate. However, they have one quirk. This individual is obsessed with Jim Henson's gothic puppet fantasy, The Dark Crystal. Beyond watching it on DVD at least once a month, they pepper casual conversation with Dark Crystal references, use Dark Crystal analogies to explain everyday events, and occasionally like to talk intensely about the film's deeper philosophy. Would this be enough to stop you from marrying this individual? Keep up the good work, Chris from Channel 83. Now, <laughs> this this question might upset some people because I have to admit that I didn't see The Dark Crystal as a kid, which means I don't really have any nostalgia for it besides, hey, look at Muppets, which I like. And when I finally got to it, I honestly thought it didn't really live up to the hype. and I thought it was a little overrated. So... You know, you take that with the fact that I wouldn't be too enthusiastic to talk about Dark Crystal even once in a while. You know, and also they're watching on DVD. I don't even know if it's out on Blu-ray. I probably could have looked that up, but it feels insane for them to be watching it on such an outdated form of media. Um, You know, I think that Dark Crystal would really start to grate on me and be a deal breaker. You know, but also it's possible it would grow on me. Um... But I don't think so. I'm sorry to this hypothetical person who loves the Dark Crystal, but it's just not going to work out. It's not you, it's me. But also, it's it's you. It's your Dark Crystal obsession. I'm sorry. It's, it's a deal breaker. Thanks for the question, so Chris. Uh, we also got a question here from Sniggy, who asks, if Leatherface, Jason, Michael, Pinhead, Freddy, and Chucky are stuck in the cube and they can't use any powers to just leave... Who makes it out? This was a really interesting question. And, you know, I guess you say they can't use any powers to just leave who makes it out. As far as their powers, I kind of am a little stumped here just because, you know, Freddy can technically, like, regrow limbs and stuff. And uh, so I'm pretty much considering it like a power dampener where they just have no powers in here. Um, But Chucky is still allowed to at least be alive, even though... I guess his only power is just being a voodoo spirit in a 
in a doll. Leatherface, Jason, and Michael, I immediately knocked them out because they're all too clumsy and too stupid. Uh, it'd be way too easy for one of the others to manipulate them into doing something dumb, or they would just make a mistake on their own. So I'm saying that they're right out. I'm saying that Pinhead, also with no powers, I don't see that guy faring too well, especially with that big leather smock weighing him down. That's going to be heavy. It's going to be hot. They We see how warm they get in Cube, and... Um, I think that he'll be real unhappy. He'll make a mistake. And uh, Pinhead, he's out. So that leaves Freddy and Chucky. And I think ultimately, because of size advantage, I'm going to give it to Chucky. You know, these traps are built for normal-sized humans. And so even if it's just by accident, you know, a few close shaves make all the difference. Um, I'm willing to believe that his size and his weight and basically just the fact that he's a doll gives him an advantage here. He can, he can he can utilize the space more effectively. So great question, Sniggy, and uh, thank you so much for sending that in. Uh, the next question comes from Dan from TYTD Reviews, another uh, friend of the show. And he says, George, when I heard you were doing a mailbag episode, I knew I simply had to write in, not because I had anything particularly to take you to task over, but quite the opposite. I just wanted to use the opportunity to give you a well-deserved pat on the back. As a fellow creator, I know the time, blood, sweat, and effort that goes on behind the scenes, the ups and downs, highs and lows that come with making an episode on a weekly basis, let alone maintaining and managing hectic guest schedule, marketing, and all that other good stuff that keeps us busy. So I just wanted to say a very sincere, well done. You're one of the most dedicated podcasters I know out there. You're always looking for ways to build on and improve your formula, and I'm sure that I speak not only for myself, but for your listeners when I say I'm always delighted when a new episode of yours drops in. Keep making the magic happen, man. I very much look forward to seeing what you do in the future and hope there are plenty more great horror movies, according to your guests at least, to come. I suppose I should ask some kind of question, just so that this doesn't become too much of a love-in. And I suppose given my wheelhouse is cult and B-movie cinema, I don't think I've ever asked, what are your top three favorite B-movies? Sincerely, Dan. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, Dan. And of course, back at you. This guy, he knows so much about horror, and his YouTube channel is really great. And I'm going to kind of bypass stuff like The Wicker Man, which is technically a B-movie, but sort of escapes that connotation, as you can hear us talk all about in his episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly. But as far as my top three B-movies go, oh man, this is really tough. I think, I'd say right now, my top picks are Extro, of course, I mean, that's that's probably going to make the cut every single time. I think Extra is just so great. Raw Force is another really fun one. You know, you got Cameron Mitchell in there. He's always a blast. And he's actually part of the movie, which is not always the case for a Cameron Mitchell one. You got Kung Fu. You got Cannibal Monks. You got Zombies. What's not to love about that? And um, I guess the last one I would probably pick is Scary Tales, which is... A fun little, uh, like, creep show knockoff from Baltimore, Maryland. I think it was made for $200. <laughs> and, um, and, I mean, God, it's it's a production value is just so minimal, but there's so much heart in it. And uh, that's really part of what I love about B-movies is getting to see what it's like when, you know, Jack and Jill on the street try and make a movie. And... You know, they they manage some stuff, and there's some fun dialogue. Like when uh, the cop uh, shoots the devil, he goes, yeah, fuck you, bang. <laughs> he shoots him in the head. <laughs> oh, man. 
it's like the perfectly uh, incompetent kind of thing. And, and you know, I know that they made a, a great effort, and I don't call it incompetent as a slight, but, you know, it, it's just the facts, and that's what I love about it. I do also have a real soft spot for the gore cut of Tammy and the T-Rex, but I didn't include it because it is specifically the one cut. So if you watch the non-gore cut, it can be kind of bad, uh, just bad, <laughs> not the good kind of bad. And um, if you're watching with people who can handle a B-movie that has some of those like risque erotica elements, uh, The Perils of Gwendolyn is absolutely hilarious. And, um, you know, PA's own Len Kabazinski, you got The Challenge of the Five Gauntlets, among uh, several other great, great B-movies. Uh, so uh, instead of three, I gave you six, but I guess caveats. So there you go. And we got a second Dan, this time from New Jersey, who asks a question that kind of plays into what Dan was talking about in the previous question. And he says, hi, George, I've been a longtime listener and the show keeps getting better. You seem so knowledgeable about each movie, and I was wondering if you could tell us how much time you spend preparing for an episode and what your process is. Uh, well, Dan, uh, the answer to your question is I spend a lot of time preparing for every episode. I would say that a normal 90-minute movie takes me probably about three or four hours to watch while I'm taking notes, depending on how distractible I am that day. And, uh, you know, not a, not that many movies are 90 minutes anymore, so it's really more than that. And then there's another probably four or five hours of doing research on the movie and the actors and, and the sort of where horror was at that time. Uh, although obviously this can fluctuate pretty wildly depending on the movie because some things have like no information. Stuff like the suckling is so hard to find any information about. And on the other hand, you have stuff like La Llorona in which I have to basically shotgun like 120 years of Guatemalan history in order to kind of understand the cultural context. So that really can fluctuate, but uh, it's usually a lot. I, I try and do as good a job as possible on the research portion, and uh, hopefully that shows. And then the real bane of my life is is the editing portion because I am a very slow editor, but I am also extremely neurotic about trying to make it sound as good as possible, which means that I really go through with a fine-tooth comb, and I edit out the ums and the likes, but I try and leave a few in here to make it sound natural and not like we're robots, and taking out, uh, you know, dead air and 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 speeding things up and, and making sure that we're not talking over each, over each other and making sure that uh, our audio is the same level I'm I'm very slow and it's a very technically uh, very intense process. It probably takes me like another like six hours, maybe six to eight, for me to edit a ninety-minute episode. That's I don't think that that's typical. It might be, but I don't think it is. I think I'm very slow, um, and that happens four times a month. And this, of course, doesn't account for the producer stuff, like figuring out who might make a good guest reaching out, getting them scheduled, and then the marketing stuff, like trying to run the Twitter feed, which is, I mean, <laughs> you can see that that was taking up too much time because I have basically abandoned the Facebook and Instagram because I just, I don't enjoy spending time on those platforms, unfortunately. And so at least I can, at least I can enjoy the Twitter. So, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of my, I guess, brand building uh, time over there. But, um, you know, that's, that's not exactly the the it's tough because you kind of just scroll through it all day you know it's not 
it's not like I'm taking an hour to go through, but that, that little bit of time on each thing does build up. And then there's also the Patreon stuff, which is at least one more episode. And then four hours of X-Files per week, plus another hour or so to write up my thoughts. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's probably, I would say, a conservative estimate of the amount of time that I spend every month on the show is probably like 81 hours. Uh, and a month has 730 hours. So <clears throat> basically, I spend a full like 11 or 12% of my time on the show, which doesn't include the sleeping and eating parts as well. So, uh, you know, hopefully people enjoy it and uh, that amount of effort shows. Um, and also hopefully we get to the point where um, I can hand off some of those processes like the editing, which would be awesome. But but I also, I, I love putting that time in because I do think that the show is a lot of fun to do. And if it wasn't, I definitely wouldn't still be doing it. But I love learning about horror and I love learning about our guests and taking the time to do the research not only uh, makes me feel happy that I just have more knowledge for myself, but when I can bring something new to the table for someone who already loves the movie, that they're the one bringing the movie to me. If I can bring something to them that they don't know about or find some insight that, uh, that really like hits them right, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about uh, during the episodes. That's, that's the moments that I think really make the show sing. And uh, so that's always what I'm striving for. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. Sometimes the order varies because sometimes I'll take notes on, like, the context before actually watching it. But if it's something I haven't seen before, I'll usually try and watch the movie first so I don't spoil anything for myself and can get the uh, authentic reactions. I, I think that's it, I guess. Uh, probably more in-depth than you actually wanted. <laughs> but uh, But there you go. So that's sort of the process of behind the curtains here at the Horror House. Those are all the questions we're going to answer this time, but uh, if you enjoyed this and you want to hear more, send in more questions, and or maybe we'll do another one. And uh, that email address that you can send those questions to is bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. Uh, that's it. Bye. <laughs>